Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Attention to Detail. This is Jacob joining you as always, and again I am joined by my co-host Hannah Raffitt for the final episode in our series on what to expect in, in movements of a symphony. Hannah, welcome back. Hello, how you doing? Very good, doing well. So we're, uh, we're on to our last style of movement here on this podcast, the fourth movement. Um, maybe some people's favorite movement in a symphony. I'm curious now that we've gotten to the end, maybe I should ask you this at the end of the podcast, but before we talk about fourth movements, I'm curious, uh, do you have a favorite? Would you say that the fourth movement is your favorite? No pressure. I, I guess. I mean, one of my favorite pieces is Sibelius five, which has three Mm. movements, but I love the third movement, particularly like the last five beats of that, that piece. Um, and I think sort of like the tension, um, and that specifically, but around fourth, last fourth or last movements in general is basically why I love last movements perhaps the most is that, okay, you've sat through a gorgeous piece for maybe 30, 30, 40, maybe up to an hour long, depending on who the composer is. Yeah. But um, so you've sat through, and if you've been listening, this is like when the, the reward comes in from all your patience and all your hard work of being a, a attentive listener. Yeah, um, for sure. For and sure. I think that is why it's it's one of my favorites and then i just love i love the ones that make you want to leap out of your your seat at the yeah, end yeah for sure i think the last movement's definitely like you said they they cap off symphonies and we're going to clump that, that, that's a good point you made there we're going to clump in a lot of third movements to this episode if the piece is three movements long it's you know the, we're mostly talking about fourth movements but really it's about last movements and, yeah, one thing you mentioned there, I mean, we talked a little bit on the last episode about the analogy of the third movement being some sort of palate cleanser if we're talking about a meal. And the natural analogy would be for the last movement to be a kind of dessert. Um, and, you know, I'm actually curious, maybe over the course of this episode, we should keep that food analogy or meal analogy in mind because... Uh, I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think about kind of, is this a dessert? You know, meals can take two very different directions. Sometimes you end with the steak, Mm. um, and other times, or for me, I'm a vegetarian, whatever the equivalent is like a impossible steak. Um, and sometimes you end with a dessert and they're very different. Like in my mind, dessert is a light cap off to the meal. It's sweet. The steak is incredibly heavy. Um, and so I'm curious to get your take on on how these last movements land. We're going to listen through history a little bit, and it, some of them might have different impressions. Yeah, I think it varies piece to piece, quite honestly. I think on the whole, I tend to think of it more as like the, the steak option, perhaps maybe with like a really nice light glaze mm-hmm. to accompany it, because I think like... The descriptor of it's heavy and it's really full is not a, is not enough. But also, if you take that aw- if you take that away entirely and use the analogy of the dessert, then I don't I still don't feel like the dessert is enough. Yeah. Well, let's let's see. So, well, I mean, we won't get the full impression from these clips, but let's listen like we have on the other episodes to 
some early last movements and then how they evolved. So here's one from a relatively young Mozart. Um, this is actually uh, the third movement, so not fourth movement, but the third movement to his Paris Symphony, which only has three movements. So here is that, uh, that movement. So, so initial thoughts on what, what, what sound world, what, what ambiance, what emotions do you feel from, from this last movement? Um, definitely bombastic. Um, there's such a busyness to it. And, but it's interesting that, I mean, this whole process of going through all the movements have been interesting because not being thoroughly familiar with the canon you could have told me that that was maybe a first movement, perhaps, because there's something very regal to it that, for me, is, like, very opening to, like, inter introduce an audience. Um, so I'll be interested to hear how this conversation goes with the rest of your clips. But generally, very bombastic, and it sounds like, yes, it could be the conclusion to yeah. the piece. Well, it's interesting you say that because in many ways, I think first movements and last movements share the most similarities for mm -hmm. sure, especially as we move into later pieces. Um, but this one, you know, I think what's interesting, what distinguishes this as a last movement potentially is a couple of things, which I hadn't even thought about until you mentioned that, but they're worth pointing out. So we'll get to this, but a lot of times last movements will be somewhat virtuosic mm. um, in that way I see them a little bit like a dessert they're sometimes kind of short movements but very fast very exciting and also there could be some humor involved there could be they're, they're a little bit often at least early they're a little bit more lighthearted than mm. the first movement now that's that can change yeah that was more of like a like a tart, like a custardy tart with like fruit on it. Yeah. More, like, more yeah. than a steak. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the other thing about this clip that sticks out to me now that you said that is that, you know, it starts incredibly quietly with this little rustling, very mm. busy, which to me, if you started a first movement like that, it would be an odd opening to a symphony. Mm. You know, normally symphonies open with, like you said, some sort of bombastic, yep. uh, regal, but the only difference is that we started very quietly and it's kind of the third movement has set this up and now we're going to do this humorous, exciting. So that's the one kind of, and the very, very high tempo. Mm -hmm. That is another notable characteristic of many last movements. Very fast. So now though, I should mention, uh, we're going to listen to another one from Mozart. This is from a concerto. This is actually another one of his third movements. But this gives us a good sense of another direction that composers can take the last movement, which is a much more, they can really treat it like a dance and have it be, again, kind of trivial, have it not trivial in like a, it's bad music sense, but 
less academic than the first movement, and it has, it's more of like a, a I don't even see it as a dessert. I'm curious to hear what, mm. what you think, but it's, it's, it's more of a dance topic that composers can elect to use here. So here's another one by Mozart. So I should mention off the bat that that solo instrument you hear is a violin, and this is the last movement of a concerto, which is a solo instrument accompanied by orchestra, so a little different from a symphony. But but Hannah, your, your reactions to that one? I think generally I could definitely hear um, a lot of fastness mm -hmm. in the orchestra. Um, that overall, I think what we were just discussing sort of fits with last movements. Mm -hmm. And then um, just the music itself sounds very like almost as if like you're at the you're at the end of a party and you can just tell like the host is like, OK, now we're going to end the party and now we're going to say goodbye and now we're going to. And I you feel that a lot in in this particular clip that you just played. Yeah, um, I, I to me, I agree that this one has a more conclusory kind of tie the bow on the end of the the piece type of feel. Sure. Um, and a little, do you hear that kind of dance-like element as well? It's yeah. kind of, yeah, it's a little more lilting. It's a little, so that's just to give a sense of, of two of the possibilities, two of the relatively common possibilities that composers will use when, uh, when writing a last movement. One of them is very virtuosic. One is a little more dance-like, um, there's one other thing, we've mentioned it a little bit, but I wanted to play just a very quick clip of a, a movement of a Haydn symphony, because I mentioned humor is often another element of last movements. And so I just want to play for you this quick clip. Um, great uh, musical joke by Haydn here. I wonder if our listeners, I wonder if you will find it funny. Uh, maybe it's maybe this is the kind of thing that only I find funny, but it's incredibly obvious, and so you'll notice. And so I want you to hear a little bit of this. This is the finale to his 60th symphony. I mean, I find that funny. Did you... Uh, Are they tuning? What are they... They're pretending to be just... What is that? Yeah, so basically, Haydn actually wrote in the score. Uh, he wrote out kind of in musical notation how people are supposed to tune and how, how tuning normally sounds. 
and he actually tells the violin players to tune their lowest string down before the start of this movement so that in this tuning passage they like adjust their string and so it's it's meant to be a joke it's like you start this movement and then it suddenly stops and everyone starts tuning you know and, and they're like adjusting their instruments and then you just continue on with with the movement proper which is as you heard like a blazingly fast yeah. exciting last movement but he decided to just include this ridiculous <laughs> tuning in the middle of the last movement does that get performed often this is not the most commonly played one of the Haydn symphonies, but it's a really good one. Um, uh, maybe doing some of it at the why did Why night. did he, I have so many questions, why did he just decide to put in tuning in the... Because he was a funny dude who liked oh. messing with people. Oh yeah, he wrote like, some of his symphonies have fake endings. You know, the Surprise Symphony is a famous one, mm. which many of our listeners might have heard. Boom, 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 boom. And it goes on, and then suddenly out of nowhere, there's this big outburst. It just goes, boom, which is meant to, like, lull people to sleep yeah. in the second movement. And then it's like, you're not going to sleep during my second movements. Because <laughs> I guess the story goes that a lot of people had been falling asleep during Haydn's second movement. So he wrote this very pretty, nice, and then just <laughs> wake up. Yeah. Um, so funny dude, Haydn. But also his humor uh, had a big influence, actually, on... On last movements. So now I want to go along a little bit in history and listen to some other last movements. And we'll start with a piece we've heard many times on this podcast, the Eroica Symphony last movement. The Eroica Symphony was a watershed piece for romanticism and just, just an important piece in so many ways. But I want you to hear the opening and kind of the first introduction of the main theme and keeping in mind what we've heard so far, I want to hear your thoughts on on kind of what direction it seems Beethoven is taking this finale. So a lot happens in that clip, but I'm curious, what, what were your thoughts in the context of, of what we've heard? I mean, just coming off of the Haydn, it's so cheeky. Yeah, yeah. very good. Um, so it starts with this like massively virtuosic mm. passage, super loud, really fast, and then it comes to a halt, and then when that first theme is played, what's what's your sense of that kind of... The, where the strings are just playing pizzicato. Boom, 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 boom. Does that feel like... If you had to pick one of the Mozart examples we heard, does that feel more like the the first one, the kind of bustling, active one, oh, or the... Second, for sure. Second, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think to me, this is an interesting one because it has 
all three elements in a way of what we just listened to starts very abruptly with this frenzy of activity. And then you get this beginning of the actual kind of movement proper, which is this kind of elegant dance. yeah. Yeah. And then there's some cheekiness there where suddenly it's just very loud out of nowhere. Oh, that's quite interesting. Yeah. I I see what you're doing. Yeah. I see what you're doing. A little fusion of all three right there. So anyways, partly to show that... um, in this, in this movement, Beethoven clearly kind of borrowing from several different genres or, or kind of archetypes that a, was that he, a last was movement Was he really? Make. Like, was he... I mean, is, prob- is it hard to know if, like, Beethoven was like, oh, I will um, use Mozart uh, throughout this, and then, oh, I really love how uh, funny Haydn was. Yeah, I mean, I, it may not have been a completely conscious decision, like, I'm, but Beethoven knew these composers' works incredibly well. Sure. You know, studied with Haydn for a little bit, and uh, certainly knew, knew Mozart incredibly well. And so whether he was thinking in that moment specifically about a particular piece of Haydn or something like that, he absolutely was heavily influenced by the idea of, here's what a last movement can be can be virtuosic, mm. it can be funny, it can be a dance, and kind of yeah. clearly decided to fuse all three of those. Okay. So um, whether or not it was an active thought process, he absolutely knew, probably knew... Uh, he was well aware and influenced. Yeah. Unsure of if he was directly... Yeah. Yeah. But, but uh, I mean, all, if, if not completely directly, very closely Got related. It. Okay. So then, of course, Beethoven, big revolutionary, uh, went off and did his own things, too. And he was the real creator of, at least, or, or kind of, he introduced to the symphonic form this uh, kind of standard archetype for a symphony called Struggle to Triumph, um, which is like a kind of map or, or descriptor for what a lot of Beethoven and later symphonies kind of follow. Beethoven's Fifth is the quintessential example of this. The first movement is incredibly stormy and intense and obsessive, and it's in minor, and over the course of the symphony, it gets transformed into this very triumphant major. And in this format, the last movement becomes like the absolute apotheosis, culmination of all of the efforts, the struggle leading up to that. And so it really is much more of the sense of that the fourth movement is the big arrival of the symphony and everything else is working towards it. So it, it puts the fourth movement, Beethoven really put the fourth movement on a pedestal equal to the first movement or even maybe slightly above. And so let's hear a little bit of the fifth symphony finale, just which is this moment where You've, you've struggled and now you've reached this, this big triumph.
All right. Uh, thoughts on that one? For sure triumphant. Yeah. That clip that you just sent. And then there's the busyness, too, that we have been seeing throughout of the da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. That, um, man, it's just so good. I'm yeah. glad that you're playing this one because it's one of my other favorite good, yeah. last movements. No, and I think but what you mentioned there is very important. It's triumphant and all that kind of stuff, probably more so than you would expect from a first movement, the mm. big brass corrals. And you haven't earned it yet, in my opinion. In the opinion. first movement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> you haven't earned it yet. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think, and that's actually, I think, why it's such an effective kind of dramatic scheme to do this struggle to triumph. You've got a slow burn, a symphony. Yeah, for yeah. sure, for sure. And I agree. And I think the when you feel the tension and you know, it builds to this huge, huge climax. That's, that's, especially when you watch a whole symphony, uh, and sit through it. I mean, that's, that's an incredible thing. But like you said, also up tempo faster than a first movement generally would be. So it's exhibiting a lot of the same characteristics, but in a way more triumphant way. Mm. Um, so that's one of the big kind of innovations if we want to call it that of Beethoven of course his ninth symphony the ode to joy takes this even to another level there's a choir there's it's this just you know parade of bombast and excitement and huge finale also after this kind of struggle to triumph narrative the first movement is in minor and second movement's in minor and yeah so we push to this this big triumph in, in that piece as well. So now I want to look at, uh, again, some, some slightly later finales. First one is from Brahms, First Symphony. And we've talked about Brahms already on this podcast, how he was a real kind of conservative and also modeled off his symphonies off of, you know, the the works of, of Beethoven and Mozart and... And so I want to play two clips for you from uh, the finale of the first Brahms symphony. And I'm curious just to get um, your sense of... Let's, let's actually play these two clips back to back. Um, the first is the opening, and the second is the main theme that comes in significantly later. Um, so here are those two clips, and then we'll, we'll get your impressions.
right, so uh, let's get your thoughts on, on those two clips in order. I, I'm a little disappointed in my choice of performance for this. I'm not going to say what it was, but uh, it's, it's, it's fine. I, I'm, I'm not pleased with the performance of the second of those clips. It's a little mm. too... But in any, in any case, first the first one, uh, what's, your, what's your thought on the first one, given that that's the beginning of the last one? It's so foggy. Like, yeah. It's just shrouded in like mist or something. I've I've seen this performed live, but I don't remember it at all. I yeah. and I mentioned this on the last episode that I just I didn't I didn't understand Brahms one. Yeah. Um, and you know what? I'm starting to understand having listened to these two clips because I think it's a lot to sort of not grasp, but like there's just a lot going on, and there's sort of like a mystery to to it that I think I just could not understand at the development of my understanding at yeah, that time. Yeah. So the second the second clip, it sounds like very hymnal to me. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Mm. And it's kind of recognizable melody. It's yep. uh, um but the first one I think you mentioned, you know, I think this this catches a lot of people by surprise, the start of the last movement. Absolutely. It's a very kind of nondescript beginning and like you said it's very misty and in a way kind of represents some sort of struggle it feels like it's not bombastic no yeah and i think um part of what brahms was kind of trying to do in this movement is and and certainly in the whole piece is i mean he was brahms we know was explicitly following the mold of beethoven five and nine because he quotes Beethoven five in the first movement of this symphony. They're both in C minor. And then this second theme that you heard that was kind of hymnal, like you mentioned, is eerily similar to the Ode to Joy theme. But, you know, in this last movement, kind of what he's trying to do, because Brahms really struggled with finales. In fact, that's why he waited so long to come out with his first symphony. He didn't publish it until well into his mature composing career. And it was because he was trying to figure out what to do with finales. He would write finales that were dance-like, like the Mozart violin concerto that we heard, uh, very lighthearted, and those clearly didn't feel substantial enough to him. He wrote a couple, you know, really cracking, fast finales that felt also also kind of too trivial in a way. And he was tinkering with this last movement. It was definitely the one that proved most difficult to him. And then he came up with this, which is kind of like he puts the entire struggle to triumph narrative in this one movement again, because we start in this kind of cloudy, it's maybe not necessarily struggle, but like lost to found or something like that. He contains that all in one movement. And so then, as many of our listeners might know, as you, as you might remember from the performance, this, this first symphony ends incredibly triumphantly mm-hmm. a la Beethoven V or something like that. But a great finale to listen to, the, first of the, 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 the last movement of the first, because it's so complex. I'm not surprised that it was challenging to, to grasp on first listen. Mm-hmm. Um, but but a, a, a great piece nonetheless. So couple more that I have for us, because then as we get into the Romantic era, the finale became, I think composers really latched on to the meatiness, and my take is, you know, it became much more of a steak and much mm. less of a dessert. Um, 
And so here is a finale from Dvorak from his New World Symphony. Um, you, you, you're nodding your head. You, you might know this one. I mean, it's a classic. It's a classic. Uh, our listeners might recognize this not only for this piece, but also a, a movie soundtrack that sounds a lot like it. But let's listen to a little bit, in any case, of, of this last movement of Dvorak 9. So how does that one track in our in our progression of the last movement? It's just fantastic. Have you, I'm assuming you've conducted yes. the Dvorak. Yeah. I mean, if I were to ever conduct, I think I would want to do this movement because it's just so dramatic and badass. Like if I if I were ever to just like take a turn in my life and just like live a really dark villainous existence uh-huh. i would just be playing this the whole time <laughs> yeah no it's 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 definitely a fun one to conduct this whole movement cuz you just can kind of let it rip as and, a and even those first notes like everyone knows it yeah. Every, everyone like i just vividly remember being a kid and being like on vacation with my dad and we were in the pool and my dad is just like doing doing the jaws theme oh yeah well for sure so like that just happens like right so and then there's that that pressure as well just, but then <laughs> to make it, it as clean as possible yeah, you want it to be clean luckily the the beginning of this movement is is uh decently playable for the orchestra so you just kind of you know go for it as mm. the conductor but interestingly one thing i wanted to mention so i think for me this this is you know, this couldn't be any other movement than the last. Sure. It starts so aggressively, and um, it would just be... It's almost, like, too much to start a symphony this way. Maybe not. There's there's certain symphonies, like Chike's Fourth Symphony starts with a similarly, like, massive, in-your-face brass chorale. But something about this, it's, it's up-tempo, and it's... Um, but interestingly, this piece kind of... This intensity, villainous quality, like you mentioned, starts to give way over the course of the movement to a more kind of nostalgic, wistful, uh, major quality of, of the music. And this movement actually ends quietly. You know, it's, there's a big chorale at the end, but then the woodwinds hold this note and it just kind of fades away. And so it's an interesting, different direction for Dvorak, who also struggled to a certain extent with finales. The finales were definitely Dvorak's, uh, in my mind, weakest of his four movements generally. Like his Seventh Symphony, the finale is a little unconvincing in an otherwise great symphony. The Eighth Symphony, the finale is fun, but kind of slips into that trivial territory that Brahms and many were, were trying to avoid. And and so this one, he took a very kind of nostalgic, this is the New World Symphony, it's a nostalgic piece. Um, and it's an interesting end to the symphony after this really epic 
opening. Um, but to close, I, we have to listen to a really epic finish because that's that's kind of what, to a certain extent, that's what finales are all about, and especially in the late romantic, early modern era. Finales became the moment of maximum epicness. Um, and so we'll listen to the towards the end of, of a symphony by Mahler, his, his second symphony, which is just has an absolutely epic ending, really takes the finale, the whole, the whole idea of a finale as like a journey from struggle to triumph a la Brahms to the, to the greatest extent and biggest scope. So here's the end of Mahler's second symphony. Thoughts on that one? I mean, pretty epic. It was incredibly epic. I don't know what else you could do to add to that besides just sort of like ascend into the heavens or something uh -huh. like that. It's, I, I, what else can you add to that mm. to make it more epic? I think that's kind of uh, honestly this piece and Mahler and Strauss. It's kind of the 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 pinnacle of of epicness in music, and I think part of the one of the many reasons why modernism and kind of reaction to uh, romanticism came about was because in a way like if you're just going for epicness drama of a finale in the standard sense how do you top that it's mm. you, you can't really I, mm. I don't think um, and yeah I mean Mahler just expanded the idea of a last movement and the idea of a symphony and everything to its absolute biggest form uh, so this last movement starts similar to the Brahms this like apocalypse and then it slowly but surely gets transformed into this resurrection yep. like heavenly moment so yeah it's a great piece we did an entire breakdown uh of this piece on, on this podcast which our listeners can go and check out but um any final takeaways from I'm actually curious to just get your impressions having kind of done this exercise over four episodes of looking at the standard Movement, the, the forms of a, of a symphony and kind of what they're typically made out to be. What, what, what are your impressions? Um, I was thinking earlier when we were talking about the height and how wonderful it's been to go through all of, all of the movements of the general symphony and sort of realize how influenced composers have been by those that have come prior and that they are sort of paying homage to those people, but then also doing their own thing and being pioneers 
um, in and of themselves and how wonderful that is and how sort of like real life that that can be um, and how needed that is regardless of what industry you work in like that's just how that's why we all go to school and we study what we study so that we can build on that and do something great and just how wonderful um, music can be because of all the wonderful innovations that have come prior to that and so I think that that is just been such a pleasure to learn and hear from about all the influences that Beethoven received and Haydn and, and Brahms. So that's been incredibly lovely. So thank yeah. you so much. Oh, well, thank you for, for joining. I think like what you said there is part of the point of this series, which is that to really appreciate uh, what great composers are doing, it helps to know how they're interacting with with the canon. And so if you kind of, you know, if I were going to tell someone from scratch how to build their skill of listening to classical music, I think I'd recommend starting kind of from the beginning and mm -hmm. working your way up because it's not always the most fun that way. But if I had someone who had endless attention, endless curiosity, that's what I'd say. Because, because then, you know, it's, it's the Mahler symphony is epic but it's 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 very epic to listen to it by itself but when you realize how how that's interacting with like the Brahms symphony and how Brahms interacted with the Beethoven symphony and how Beethoven interacted with the Haydn symphony and stuff like mm -hmm. that i think it heightens the appreciation even a little bit more for sure so are you saying start with the gregorian chant <laughs> I mean, if you're if you have endless energy, then by all means. But I mean, because actually, like you joke, but but if we really wanted to trace all of this back, it goes um, there, doesn't it? Yeah, and, I mean that Gregorian chant is considered the kind of the beginning of of Western music history, mm -hmm. uh, specifically because that's the first type of music that was notated. Yeah. It makes a big difference, um, but you know, Gregorian chant. Uh, this is for people who really have a long attention span, but like monophonic music with one melody slowly but surely evolved into biphonic or polyphonic music with two or more lines. Mm. So composers started to play with how those lines interact. You get early fugues, you get like stuff like, uh, you know, there's small fugal passages, actually relatively large fugal passages in the last movement of the Eroica that we listen to that are massively complex in the, in the grand scheme of things, like multiple lines. And in one sense, you, you might just hear the last movement and think like a couple adjectives, that's trivial, that's a dance or whatever. But there's also this fugal passage in there that plays on what Bach did, which plays on what, you know, Palestrina did, which plays on what Josquin did. And if you really want a full appreciation for this stuff, I mean, by all means, Gregorian chant. Maybe maybe that's a good thing to start. Start your foundation with while you're going to bed because it's a little boring and it can just put you to sleep. But <laughs> but you know, I, <laughs> our listeners uh, who have stayed with us this long. I mean, I think they've listened to a lot of music now, but also just you know, our our approach here is to to listen to anything you want with with attention. But but for those who are endlessly curious, go back to the beginning, wherever that beginning might be. So. In any case, Hannah, thanks so much for joining me for these these past four episodes and, and to our listeners too. And we will be back soon uh, 
this is our 99th episode on the podcast, and so we'll be, be back with a special 100th episode uh, soon. It's been, it's been a lot of episodes. I can't believe it. I mean, you did 90% of it. No, that's... Especially during lockdown. That's not true. But yeah, during quarantine, I, I took a few of them myself. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's been a lot of episodes, and, and we're about to make it to 100, so very exciting. And uh, keep a lookout for all the stuff that will be coming out from us shortly. So, as always, if you can remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, that's great. Go to our website, www.attentiontodetailpod.com, and we will see you for our 100th episode. <laughs>